When you hit that convenience store for a pack of smokes, you might notice the warning sign. That's thanks to my next guest. She produced a settlement in a long-running dispute with the tobacco industry about retail signage. For her tenacity and skill in this and other cases, she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. The assistant director of the Consumer Protection Branch of the Justice Department, Lisa Shaw, joins me now. Ms. Shaw, good to have you with us. Nice to be here. And I want to ask you about another case that was cited in your Sammy's Award, and congratulations on that, by the way, and that is a $5 billion settlement with Facebook. Golly, I thought I remembered that one, but tell us what happened there. Uh, so that settlement, like all of the cases I've been in, cannot take credit myself. There are many other people involved. The Facebook settlement was actually negotiated by the Federal Trade Commission and referred to the Justice Department. And then the Justice Department took that settlement. We tweaked it a little bit and we ended up filing it and defending the settlement itself. The settlement resulted because Facebook had, had basically been misleading to consumers about how it was using their information. And uh, just as an example that many people can probably relate to, if you have an app and you have a Facebook account, many people report, for example, their running times on you know, using Strava or an app like that. Uh, and they put on Facebook, oh, I ran 10 miles today. Uh, well, Facebook didn't tell people that they were sharing not only your information with people that were your Facebook friends, but also your Facebook friends' friends. So your information was going much further than Facebook had been representing. And so it was that type of allegedly unfair and deceptive conduct that led the FTC and Facebook to settle. That actually resulted in a $5 billion payment, which was unprecedented and remains unprecedented in this type of FTC civil penalties case. And that money went to the Treasury, that is to say, but did consumers didn't get 40 cents a piece or anything like these class action suits? No. And a lot of people, uh, including consumers, reach out to us all the time when we win a civil penalty suit saying, hey, where's my money? There are many times where we actually do collect money and give money back to consumers where they have lost money. Uh, in the Facebook case, that was not applicable because there were not that we could tell consumers that it actually had lost money as a result of this deal. It was more you know, sort of the ephemeral data cost and, and your privacy cost. So in that case, we didn't give back money, but we we do give back remedial relief in many cases. Sure. But is the model of the Justice Department then backing up what is ruled by the FTC? Is that a fairly common model? It's not exactly ruled by the FTC. There's a statutory framework, which is the FTC Bureau of Consumer Protection investigates allegations of wrongdoing. And then when they determine that there's enough to bring a case against somebody and seek civil penalties, then they are required to refer to the Justice Department. And so we take cases that both the FTC has settled, and we also take cases that they they have not been able to settle. And so, you know, we've, we've had some very significant litigated cases, including a case against Dish Network for telemarketing, you know, millions and hundreds of millions of telemarketing violations, and a case against MyLife.com for deceptive marketing of background reports online. And in the tobacco settlement, with respect to labeling, I thought everything having to do with tobacco had been settled already. But tell us about that recent development. The tobacco case that was brought by the United States and several 
public health entities like, you know, the campaign for tobacco free kids. That case has been going on for 23, 24 years now. It was filed in 1999. The plaintiffs won um, and we won a big injunction, no money, but we won a big injunction. And that's what resulted in all of those, you know, little white boxes on the magazine ads. That's what resulted in no longer being able to advertise on TV. But what was the last piece that had not been resolved and the tobacco companies continued to fight was having to post signs in retail stores, basically saying a federal court has ordered that we have to tell you that tobacco can kill, right? Secondhand smoke kills, et cetera. But that was the result of, again, not just me. I just happened to be leading the ship at the time when it settled, but a, a group of attorneys in consumer protection branch that saw the opportunity for a settlement based on ongoing litigation and took upon it took it upon ourselves to go to the tobacco companies and say hey we think we might be able to settle and so we had three or four months of ongoing calls with them but ultimately the parties were able to reach a resolution and that was ultimately entered i believe last fall sometime and so now we're going to see signs i think starting next month in retail stores if not already it may have already been started we're speaking with Lisa Shaw. She is assistant director of the Consumer Protection Branch of the Justice Department and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And you've mentioned a couple of times there's a team that does that, and yet you were named for tenacity and your ability to really stick through a case to resolve these things that can run for a long time. So what is your motivation in doing this kind of work? For me, I feel like unlike a lot of big law work, and I was in private practice for a long time before I came to the government, you know, the cases that I do are not just about pushing money around. It's about using the enforcement power of the government to really help consumers by going after not only scammers, and we do, we go after a lot of scammers, both civilly and criminally, but also going after some of the biggest companies in the world to prevent them from taking advantage of people, from misleading people, you know, from ripping people off in in some cases by, you know, for example, continuing to charge you for a subscription you didn't know you signed up for two years ago and then making it impossible to cancel. And so I, I feel very committed to the work that my branch does and, you know, really happy to advance that. And it is not always easy. You know, we have much fewer resources than big law or these very large companies, but I feel like it's very worthwhile. And the precedents that we make will last long and they will be able to be used by other people, including consumers and other future administrations to continue the work that we're doing. Did you guys have anything to do with the big recent settlements with those ticket brokering companies? The president even mentioned it. We have not at the Justice Department taken any action about it, but that does not mean it's not going to happen. So what else have you got cooking? Well, we just filed a major settlement with Amazon into basically how it treated children's information, how the Alexa program collects children's personal information. Um, and Amazon agreed to pay $25 million to settle allegations that they were retaining children's personal information for too long. And they were deceiving parents or misleading parents about how they were storing 
kids information. In some cases, parents were requesting kids information be deleted, and it wasn't deleted. And a lot of people don't understand that Amazon is actually keeping your kids' recordings. We just filed a case like that. We just filed a, a major settlement against Microsoft for $20 million. Same type of thing. Microsoft Xbox Live was basically collecting kids' information and not telling parents or seeking parental consent ahead of time. And then last winter, I guess we, or maybe this past winter in January, we had a $275 million settlement against Epic Games, which makes Fortnite. Basically, uh, Epic knew kids were playing Fortnite online and was doing nothing to get parental consent. And so they agreed to pay a big settlement and basically completely overhaul the way that they contact parents to get their consent for their kids to play these video games online. Sure. So lots of stuff happening. And if you look at some of these cases, there is an underlying theme here, and that is there's a data and algorithmic component to this. And all we hear about now is the rise of algorithms and applications that use them, artificial intelligence. Do you get the sense that that is something that is going to increase in coming years? Absolutely. With respect to artificial intelligence, I will add that one of the challenges of the work that I do is that there is no federal data privacy law. And so all of these cases that we're doing are shoehorned into the idea that companies are misleading consumers about how it keeps or how they keep and use their data. You know, I mean, as as probably every consumer knows, you go to any website and it asks you to accept cookies and probably 99% of people just click, yes, I accept all these cookies. And so I think that there is a lot of space for a data privacy law that requires companies to use much greater safeguards. And I think AI is only going to enhance that because people feel much freer talking to AI and getting answers than they do typing information in. Uh, So I, I do see that that is coming down the pipeline probably pretty soon, I would guess. And I guess the final question is lawyers such as yourself that deal with these kinds of issues, you really need a lot of specialized knowledge in technical areas, maybe more so than in earlier generations. Yes, although because most of these cases use the Internet, you know, most I will not include myself as a young lawyer, but most young lawyers today are very familiar with these things, far more than, you know, us old guys. And so a lot of it is just what is a a reasonable consumer experience? And then, yes, sometimes we do have to hire experts with more technical knowledge. What I really love about the cases that I do is that people understand what it is that we are you know, what we're going after these companies for doing, because everybody experiences it. And so I feel like, you know, our branch doesn't get enough publicity and credit for all of the work that we do in areas that affect Americans every day. Lisa Shao is assistant director of the Consumer Protection Branch of the Justice Department and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, along with more information about her citation. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. 
Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about 
positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if 
I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.